Hey there. Welcome. This is Conversation Piece, a podcast where me, Dave Melillo, usually talks to other people, but for the second week in a row, I'm going to be talking to myself about myself, which sounds ridiculous, but there's some music spliced in, so it should be entertaining. Got some really great feedback from the episode last week, so I just wanted to continue. Uh, thank you to everybody who listened. The uh, Last week's episode was really about the beginnings of my career, being a high school kid in, in a bunch of random bands, getting discovered, things like that. And this episode basically picks up where we left off. So enjoy. Until we get to the storytelling, um, I have some frequently asked questions from last week. Again, a lot of listeners, the most that we've had for any episode so far. So thank you guys very much for picking that up. But one of the, the main things that people asked me were like how my parents felt in all of this and like how they could even let me go out and tour and do all the stuff that I did. And I, I think that's a point that I really missed. I mean, my mom really didn't let me forget that I missed uh, mentioning her in the last episode. So shout out to mom and dad. First and foremost, I wouldn't have gotten into music if it wasn't for my parents, right? They really supported me. Um, since I was a little kid, they had me in theater groups and they made me do it when, you know, I, I really wasn't into it. Cause I think they could see that I had a natural incl inclination and a talent for music in general. And so, you know, that's really hard. I would imagine as a parent to, you know, not force your kid to do something, but to give them confidence when they might not have confidence or to, you know, tell them to keep going when they want to quit. So, you know, that's a, that's a really big props to my moms and dads. And, and also, so, you know, once I did finally get that opportunity to go on tour, you know, to go out to California on a whim and, you know, a kind of audition for this label, you know, they, they never even hesitated. There was never a fight about it. The only conversation that we really had was they were pretty, um, they insisted on me finishing high school and continuing into college and just continuing my, continuing my education, which I'm very lucky. I grew up when I did because I could do most of that stuff online. And so as long as I held up my end of the bargain and I kept going to school and, you know, I didn't flunk out or just completely blow it off. They were cool with me doing whatever I needed to pursue my dream. And, you know, in talking to them, I, I think that they did that. And I know that they did that because if they held me back, I really you know, they, they didn't want me to kind of have that animosity towards them. Like they never let me reach my dream. I, you know, I don't know if in their generation they were really encouraged to go out and, and do the things that I did. You know, people were more like being more realistic, you know, get a degree, get a job. And again, they were just very, very supportive a hundred percent about me pursuing my dream, even at a young age. So, so yeah, I, I was very lucky to have cool parents like that, um, who made it very easy for me to do what I was able to do. Another question was, you know, everyone was really stunned at the fact that things just happened for me. And, you know, I, I think that's really a misconception about the music business in general, you know, well, well, most people say, they're like an overnight success, 10 years in the making or something like that. But in my case, I was really just an overnight success. I mean, you know, I, I did do some specific things. Again, I was lucky to grow up when I did right when social media was kind of exploding. Right. I, I 
I was part of some legacy sites like MySpace and Pure Volume, uh, specifically for music, but those really helped me. I remember, you know, one of the main reasons that I got quote unquote discovered was that I, I just threw up a song on Pure Volume and uh, I got a lot of plays from it. I think I got featured one week or something like that. And, you know, that was a big kickstart to my career. Again, like if I grew up in 1960, I wouldn't have had that outlet for my music. So I think one thing that you got to take away from it and something that I definitely see now with music and entertainment in general is obviously it takes talent, but there's so much luck and who you know, right? Because uh, I also feel in certain instances, I could have gotten even farther if I knew someone or I was in the right circles or, you know, if I was in the right environments or different environments, but we'll kind of get into that later. But those were two pretty big questions or pretty frequent questions that I got from like friends and just people who were listening to the podcast last week. And I wanted to make sure that I addressed them, but, uh, all right. So back to the story where I left off is all my dreams came true. Right. And I'm on tour and I release an EP and I start facing some adversity, right? I'm playing these shows. I'm an opening act. So I might get 15 to 20 minutes on stage and sometimes it's awesome. Like I remember in Salt Lake City, Utah, I, I forget exactly what the uh, the venue was, but the whole floor was moving while we were playing and it was awesome. We were on this Hello Goodbye tour. We got to hang out on their bus and, you know, we played to basically a sold out crowd every night, even though we were the first band. And, you know, that was like a really good night. But there was also some other shows where we were on tour. We were doing like a headlining tour. We were playing to like you know, a hundred person room and there was, it was half full and no one really gave a shit. And, uh, you know, that was really tough. So, so again, it, it, my dream wasn't really playing out the way that I thought it would, um, whether my expectations were realistic or not, but you know, there's all this adversity and, and also an, a kind of an undercurrent to it all is a lot of my peers, the people that I grew up with, some of the first bands that I toured with, I mentioned Cute Is What We Aim For last week, I mentioned Paramore last week, people that I came up with, they were just lapping me. And I'm, I'm not just like by one lap, I'm talking about like a couple laps, like Paramore hit and just kind of kept going, you know, I, I, I didn't think that they could get any bigger from, from where we were in like 2006, but, you know, obviously, you know where they've gotten to now. And, and obviously, Cute became one of the bigger bands in the scene. I remember um, when I was on tour, I got an alternative press and they were on the cover as like, you know, number one newest band of the year or something. They shot this crazy, you know, this crazy video for one of their singles called Curse of Curves. That was amazing. They were on a bus. That was a huge thing to me. Right. And I think for a lot of touring musicians at that time, there was there was two basic classes of acts or bands, right? You were either in a van and trailer or you were in a bus. And if you were in a bus, you were successful. If you were in a van and trailer, you were slumming it. And there was really no in between. I mean, I knew some guys who toured in like a Honda Civic too, but those people were completely off the radar. So the fact that, you know, we were in a van and trailer sleeping in Walmart parking lots, or I think I might've mentioned last time that we had a sign up sheet at our merch table where you know, people could sign up to have us over their house for a sleepover party. And uh, I had a great tour manager at the time. So like he would, you know, there was different columns on the sheet. It was like name, address so that we could look it up, phone number. And then it was like, do you have Wi-Fi? Like, will you make breakfast? It was, it was ridiculous and a completely shameless attempt to just get a free place to stay. Um, 
but yeah, that's what we were doing. Again, like it wasn't glamorous at all. You, you think about touring and and living the rock star lifestyle, and it, and it wasn't that at all. So, you know, and on top of that, I am I'm touring off of this EP, an extended play. It's five or six songs that I'm very proud of, um, but it didn't do great. It didn't sell a ton of records. Um, so when I started to approach my label at the time drive through records to record an LP or a full length album. They were kind of lukewarm. And I guess I should have seen the writing on the wall because I was a big fan of bands like the starting line and senses fail, um, and hello goodbye. And all of these bands, there were accounts of them having a really hard time getting drive through to release an album, right? I mean, infamously, I think senses fail basically, sued drive through records to release their full-length album after their wildly successful ep and i again the starting line went through similar pains right they had a really great ep and a really great first album but it was like pulling teeth to get you know the second album released so you know here's me who i, I didn't have this crazy wild success with my ep and so it was exponentially harder for, for me to get them to commit to releasing a full-length album. Uh, you know, I kind of have rifled through my emails at this point, and I've done some kind of time series analysis uh, for, just to kind of keep myself honest because the human memory is very subject to change over time, right? So I, I've been trying to make sure that I'm remembering this all at least somewhat correctly. And, uh, you know, I pulled up an email where I sent about 15 songs to these people, you know, brand new songs that I wanted on the LP. And you really only need 10, maybe 12. So, you know, I felt like I had all this new material that was so much better than what I released on the EP. Again, I, I've kind of had, you know, almost a year of touring underneath my belt. I feel like I've become a better songwriter, a better performer. My band has become better. And they're complete. Drive Through Records is completely stonewalling me, which again, to me, with my, you know, pie in the sky expectations, I didn't understand it. But I, I again, I guess I should have seen the writing on the wall. Um, but yeah, this was this is when things got really tough for me. Uh, and again, that's all relative. But you know, I, I was just basically hitting this wall where, uh, you know, I had kind of been on this this high of accomplishing things. And I was just completely plateauing. And if not plateauing, I was just taking a nosedive in the other direction. So after almost a year on the road, I was a little bit burnt out as like a 16, 17 year old kid. I had missed a lot of things that high school kids do like prom and, and, and that's really not a big deal. It wasn't a big deal to me. I wanted to be different to this day. I don't really buy into all of that bullshit. So I, I wasn't, I didn't regret it, but you know, those, those types of things were kind of pulling at me. I, I was stuck in a really weird middle space. So I went home, um, back to celebration, Florida. And, you know, I decided that, you know, maybe what I really needed to do was just focus on writing the best songs that I possibly could. And, you know, in hopes to get this new album out. Cause to me, the only way that I was going to move forward is if I had new material, all those six songs I've played so many times and I wasn't going to be able to keep going with just those six songs. So that was, I was hell bent on that or about recording better songs. And I'll never forget, I made a, like an, I don't even know if I ordered it off of Amazon. I think I just went on iTunes and I ordered three albums when I got home, right? It was Fleetwood Mac Rumors, Bad Out of Hell by Meatloaf, 
and Born to Run by Bruce Springsteen. Those three albums changed me as a musician from then on out. Uh, I listened to them. I, I don't know why I picked them. I'm not sure if someone suggested that I download them or, or what it was, but I don't, for some reason I keyed in on those three albums and it shaped me in that time with all the music I wrote. And, and this is what leads really into what I like to call like my Bruce Springsteen era. And uh, I think all artists have have different eras in their career. And we kind of talked about this the last podcast. And I, I talked about how you should see a progression from episode to episode, right? Like last episode was high school, acoustic Dave, really just trying to be Dashboard Confessional 2.0. And, you know, I wanted to progress and become an artist and, and you know, try different sounds and try different things and write different types of music. And this is where I settled in that kind of classic rock. And, uh, you know, Fleetwood Mac rumors is just a classic album. It's friggin' awesome. A bat out of hell is really cool. Sonically, you know, it's, it's meatloaf. So a lot of the songs are really long and I, I didn't resonate with, with that album as much as I did with born to run. I mean, when I first listened to Born to Run, and even to this day, it just it feels like a masterpiece. And I didn't know, I didn't know the breadth of Bruce Springsteen. I, I sound so New Jersey right now, just like in a complete love fest with Bruce Springsteen. But that album specifically was really a masterpiece. I mean, if you listen to Jungle Land, and you don't get chills down your spine, I'm really not sure if you have a soul. But you know, as a young songwriter, really trying to find my voice, that was that was it. And, and I just became really hell-bent on studying that album. And then subsequently, all the Bruce Springsteen records that became f before and after. And, you know, it, it really reflected in my songwriting. Uh, you know, I, I started to write a little bit differently. I remember I got a Telecaster. Um, you know, I tried to become a little bit more technical and, you know, incorporate a little bit more solos and instrumentation into my music. Um, everything was full band, right? I wasn't writing any more acoustic songs about girlfriends and relationships. And I kept also coming back to this one topic, like, you know, after going out on the road and, you know, I'm at the end of my high school career, I'm not really going to high school. Everyone's kind of going on and doing their own thing. And when I came home from tour, things just kind of felt different to me. Um, you know, I wasn't hanging out with the same people I was, uh, whether those people had moved on or like went to college or whatever it was. But, you know, like I, I remember I tried a couple times to like just fall right back into what I was doing before I left. And, you know, just being like a regular, regular dude in town and, and everything just felt weird. And so, this kind of leads me to the song that's coming up. I think of this song as Knights of the Island Counterpart 2, right? Because in that song, it's all about being with your friends and just partying and enjoying it. And I always saw this song uh, as the morning after, like when you have to look at yourself in the face, or just when you grow up and, um, you know, that stuff isn't enough anymore. Uh, and sonically, you know, this definitely has some, this is the start of the Bruce Springsteen era for me. But there's also, I always thought of this song as like the love child between a Counting Crow song and, uh, and a Bruce Springsteen song. So I'll, I'll let you guys listen and, and judge for yourself. This song is called Changing of the Guard. Wind up wasting the 
day waking Sunday evening begins at 11.05 When we get into the car and start to drive I never want to say goodbye Been driving down this street. It's January here, so we still can feel the heat. And that Spanish woman's working at the local store. She used to card us, but she doesn't care no more. And well, we got it just in time. So yeah, my music had definitely changed. Uh, if you compare what you heard in the first episode to what you heard here, I think I became a better songwriter, a better singer. When you play on the road every day, you can't help but to get better. I heard something really cool lately on another podcast that I listened to. They were talking about something completely different from being a musician, but 
you know, the premise was that, you know, after a few days of not doing something, you know, you kind of lose your edge. And then after the fourth or fifth day of not doing something, the audience can kind of tell that you haven't been doing it. And, and that's really true for, for being a musician. And so when you immerse yourself in that world and you're on the road every day, you have a guitar in your hand every day, you're singing every day, you're entertaining, you're engaging people every day, you just become so much better. And that's really with anything in life. Um, but yeah, I, I felt like I'd become so much better. And I remember when I handed that song over to drive through, they just were kind of like, meh, this isn't, this isn't very good. We don't like Bruce Springsteen and, uh, you know, go back to the drawing board. So I was like, shit, well, you know, I, I still, I'm still not ready at this point to just write singles, right? I have done things my way up until this point and I want to keep doing things my way. So I had this idea to really be an artist and to progress and to get to this point where I'm telling my story and I'm representing my time and my town and that's when those things became really important. You know, I hate to keep going back to Springsteen, but this is, I guess, the Springsteen episode. And a big part of Springsteen was where he came from, Asbury Park, New Jersey, where, you know, in a kind of weird, uh, funny way, I, I live right by Asbury Park right now. I go there all the time. But, you know, again, while I'm reading about him in Celebration Florida, you know, I'm like, wow, so Asbury Park is really the reason why Bruce Springsteen became what he was. He used a lot of the imagery of Asbury Park in his songs. He used a lot of the social strife and the stuff that was going on in Asbury Park in his songs. And I, I really felt like that contributed to him as an artist and gave him some legitimacy and gave him a background and a lot of more context than other artists had. So... You know, I thought to myself, I was like, I live in a really interesting place. I live in Celebration, Florida, and Celebration, Florida was developed by the Walt Disney World Corporation. It's basically on Disney property right behind Animal Kingdom. And when I lived there, like you could see the fireworks from the park every night. We were season ticket holders when I lived there. So I would like go to Epcot to eat dinner. And and again, it's kind of like a, a super uh, privileged version of you know being from somewhere and and trying to encapsulate that but I, either way i i wanted to tell that story i wanted to tell the story of being from this place celebration and and kind of what it did to people because it seemed like that town had a very specific effect on people you know people came there with dreams and more times than not those dreams got kind of turned upside on their head you know people came as families and they wound up splitting up and uh you know people came as good kids with all the opportunity in the world and they they fell into drugs or into trouble or something and you know whether that those were just narratives that i was perceiving for my own benefit i, I started to see that and again I, i'm listening to bruce springsteen and i'm like you know if i can somehow become the guy from this place and, and really speak about this place in this time and these these people, you know, I think that my music will resonate with everybody at large because this is probably not just happening with me. There's probably a lot of other places in America, in the world that can relate to stuff like this. So I started to work that a lot into my songs. You kind of heard in the last one, but this next song coming up is is really where I felt like I was the most eloquent with that idea and I put it out there in the most transparent and cohesive way. 
Um, and this was also when I started to record my own music. So all of the songs on the last episode were recorded by someone else, basically, except that the, the last song in, in the former episode, Believer, that was some like a demo that I recorded in a hotel room. But Changing of the Guard and this song that's coming up, I recorded with my buddy Matt Mendez. Shout out to Matt. Uh, I believe that we did the, these two demos in my girl, my girlfriend at the time's garage apartment in Celebration, Florida. I don't know how we convinced her to let us uh, record there, but we set up a drum set. We we laid down the bass after, like we did multi tracking, and we really got into recording, which is something that I took forward and and I I developed even more. Which if we get into like you know, five episodes deep, I can start talking about my progression as a producer and as an engineer. But, you know, this was when I really started messing around with recording myself. And uh, I think that was huge. I, these songs still sound a certain way to me, which I think is a good thing, right? I, I really, I don't know if I could recreate the way that they sound. You could think that they sound lo-fi or kind of shitty, but I also like the fact that it sounds unique. And maybe not correct, but it sounds unique and it's genuine at the very least. Uh, this song, Same Sad Song, is a song I've probably recorded four or five times after this version. But this is probably still the best version. I still consider this as one of my best songs ever. I, I Shit you not, I have I recorded the song and released it on an album as another project less than a year ago. So that should tell you how much I believe in the song and how much it means to me so uh so yeah this is called same sad song
I specifically remember after I sent Drive Through this song that, you know, Richard, who was the president, CEO, whatever you want to call him, of Drive Through, he was like, Dave, what's happened to your songwriting? Like, you used to be so descriptive with your storytelling and he referenced you know songs that I wrote when I was 15 and the lines that I used then and my mind like steam must have literally been coming out of my ears because I had spent so much more time and I had so much more purpose behind these songs and I thought that they were so much better uh that I just started going nuts right and so I was getting extremely frustrated at that time also like I was I was touring but you know I was doing smaller stints like I'd go out for a couple weeks here a couple weeks there I started to have a lot of turnover in my band too which was was not the best thing ever um you know people were just leaving because there wasn't a future you know with the EP I could say hey I want you guys to play on this this album and we'll tour off this and it'll be kind of a piece of yours but without that promise of an album that they could play on and be a part of and like kind of become my band there was really nothing to keep them on so you know I went through multiple drummers bass players guitarists I I think around this time one cool thing that happened is that we went to the UK and we toured you know cute is what we aim for who again had risen to fame at this point they were doing a headliner it was them and boys like girls and i believe they asked me to tag along it was like kind of like you know doing me a favor and it was really cool i mean touring the uk uh we actually got on a bus and uh oh no it was with hit the lights right so we shared a bus with hit the lights and it was a double decker bus in the uk so they you had it downstairs and like all the bunks were upstairs it was really fun uh and it was a great time but still, coming home from all those, it was the same same exact story. You know, I'd come home, I was a rock star, I was toured in the UK, and I come home and my, my record company won't release my record. So, yeah, I started to take a step away. And, and not in a bad way, but like I, I remember I took a trip to Italy with my family. I spent a summer in New Jersey at the shore to really immerse myself in the Bruce Springsteen experience. And... Uh, yeah, I was at the at an impasse, I'll call it. I wasn't, you know, drive through was really, hey, you need to tour more. You need to write better songs. You know, that's what they were harping. They were also at the time harping, you know, that they wanted to sign a 360 deal. And for people who aren't familiar with the, the music industry, you know, a, a 360 deal is basically that you sign on with a management company or a record label and they get a piece of everything you do, right? At that time, I was really in an interesting spot because when I signed on, it was really before the the record industry crashed. It was probably on its way down, but they were still making money off of selling records. MP3s were around, but you know, there were still there were still records being sold, and that's how record companies made money. But I think that, you know, to their, you know, to their credit, drive through kind of understood where everything was going and that, you know, just making money off of music wasn't going to work anymore. So they wanted a piece of your publishing. They wanted to manage and take a piece of your merch. They wanted to manage you and take a piece of your booking and your shows. And to me, that sounded like there was no separation of church and state. I had signed a deal that said A, B, and C. I agreed to something like four records and it was a record contract. And at the time, they were kind of saying, well, you know, we're more than happy to release the funds for your album if you'll sign, you know, you'll switch over to this 360 deal where we have more of a vested interest. And again, that sounded like a bad deal to me. So, 
you know, good, good for me for noticing that probably should have realized, you know, that a, like a year or two ago and, and went with a different party. But, you know, that's that. But that's where we basically were. That's why I call it an impasse. Because then, you know, knowing that they were trying to get me into that 360 deal, I had no confidence anymore that they were judging my music solely based on the quality of it or commercially or just, you know, anything. Right. I, I figured that they were just stonewalling me until I signed this 360 deal so that they got more of a piece of me if and when I became the next Bruce Springsteen, which I obviously was going to be. So um, I started changing a lot of things. I, I Like I explained, I lost a lot of band members, um, which sucked. They, a lot of my friends, and it was that, that's just a gross day. A lot of tour managers, a lot of, a lot of the people who started with me and went on my early tours with me, you know, I, I started changing that. I, I changed my manager at the time. I, I think I mentioned I had a great manager. His name was Dave Beam. He went on to do amazing things after me. And, you know, I, I thought that maybe he was part of the problem. So I got a new manager. I started just moving pieces around because I was desperate to get this album out. And, you know, I was lucky enough to get another great manager and it was early on his career. His name was Lucas Keller. I forget the band that he was managing. I, I forgot. I think maybe they were called June or something. I, I don't know. I don't remember, but they were kind of like a scene band, but you know, Lucas was this guy from Waukesha, Wisconsin. And, but he was really good. He had a lot of these great connections and, you know, we'll talk about where Lucas went afterwards. Cause he also went on to be amazingly successful after me. Um, but when he came in, he said, you know, Dave, if they're telling you that the music that you're writing on your own isn't that great, you have to be open to co-writing. And that was like the kiss of death to me because I was like, man, I am, you know, I'm the next coming. Like, again, I still am so hopped up on myself and the accomplishments that I've had over the past couple years that I'm like, I don't need help. You don't understand. I am the transcendental artist. I am the songwriter. I am everything and if i outsource that to someone else like that's almost like me admitting defeat but after a couple months and you know a lot of soliciting on lucas's part i was i just kind of waved the white flag i i said i will do anything to get this album out figuring that if i did a couple of co-writes with some really great guys you know that had experience you know we could say hey drive through now i've given you 15 of my own songs. I've given you 10 co-writes with people in the business who have had hits already. You can't deny this. You're just going to have to release the money. That That's just how it works, right? I, I figured I could put them in a position where they could not say no and they could just green light the project and I could be on my way. So one of the first guys that I did a co-write with, his name is Johnny Andrews. Um, it's probably not a name that you've heard before. I don't think that he was in any big bands, but he has a, a lot of great records. I, I pulled up his wiki before. He's written with like, Better Than Ezra and Slipknot and uh, what was that? What was that band? Um, hold on. I have it over here. It's a uh, Maylene and the Sons of Disaster. He wrote with William Beckett. All That Remains. Three Days Grace. Theory of a Dead Man. Chiodos. So he was more of like a rock guy, which is one of the reasons why I wasn't a hundred percent sure about it, but it was really, it was my first co-writing experience. So I, again, and I'm desperate. I'm, I will do anything. I flew down to Atlanta, Georgia on my own dollar and I stayed at a hotel, like just some like holiday inn or something. And you know, I, I went to Johnny's house. We banged out an idea the first day. I went back to the hotel, kind of finished the lyrics on my own. Then I went back the next day and recorded a song and um, it felt kind of cold to me, but 
you know, I think that we wrote a really great song, but you'll hear a, a really big departure from the, the first two songs that have been on this episode. This is like where I become kind of Hollywood Dave. I tried to keep a lot of the Springsteen stuff though too, even to the, the extent that I named this song. <laughs> this is so funny. I named this song after a Springsteen song. It's on the river. It's called the Bruce Springsteen song is called The Ties That Bind, and this song is also called The Ties That Bind, albeit that it's a completely different song about a completely different thing. But that just kind of tells you where my head was at. I was, I was still trying to do things my own way, even though I was being forced into to this position where I had to write with other people and kind of change what I was doing to just to get my record out the door. So, uh, so... I don't know. I think this is a really cool song. Uh, I'm I'm really interested to hear what you think, but this is called The Ties That Bind. How did we get to this place? In the beginning, things were so damn easy. It seemed that everything I am was what you wanted As we grew into our skin Mine got thicker as yours was wearing thin Thinking about the boats you missed The lips unkissed What might happen if we can't keep on If you can't keep on believing If you don't want 
So in my mind, I had acquiesced to the machine and I had done what I felt was required of me. I kind of wrote a song that didn't fly with exactly what I was trying to do it do right i mean but it sounded like a lot of the rock music that was on the radio so i give it to drive through and they kind of have a lukewarm reception i think that they realized i was trying to do the right thing and but but they were still not like you know they weren't like hey okay you're good here's the money going to the studio tomorrow do the album right so you know, I'm kind of, I kind of go back to Florida and I'm like, okay, well, this co-write thing wasn't so bad. And I started to realize the, the opportunity that this would give me. And I would get to kind of learn from these really great songwriters and develop as a songwriter myself. And so, you know, I said to Lucas, uh, okay, man, well, we did this thing with Johnny. That was great. Is there anyone else? You know, and obviously Lucas had some people lined up and uh, specifically he had someone lined up and his name was Kevin Griffin. And Kevin was the lead singer of a band called Better Than Ezra. Uh, if you don't remember Better Than Ezra, they had they had a probably an album that went platinum or or gold or at least silver, right? Sold a ton of records. But there was a song called Walk On. Oh, you wanna walk on, and it's good. Uh, it, honestly, just Google it, and I think you'll recognize the song. But you know, Kevin was a big deal. He lived out in Los Angeles, and so. Lucas said, why don't you go out to LA? Don't just do it for a day. Why don't you go out there for like a week or something and record with, with Kevin and see what you think. And he can see what he thinks. And, you know, if he likes it, maybe this is someone who will even record the album. And, you know, he kind of set it up again. I went into it skeptical because again, I think I am the best person to write and record my album at this point. But I'm starting to realize that I just might have to play the game to a certain extent just to get it out. Drive Through Records was also based in LA. So another great thing about going out to Los Angeles would be that I could have Richard come to wherever we were recording and, and kind of meet Kevin, see what we were doing and get him excited and show him that I was ready to take that next, next step in my career, that I wasn't just gonna hang out in Florida until he gave me money to record this record, that I was going to actively pursue recording this record whether he was involved or not or at least i was going to push it to the point you know where it gave them no choice either to play along or to release me or I, i'm not sure what i thought but this sounded like the perfect plan right to just go out to los angeles spend some time there and write with this guy kevin and this was one of the experiences that completely surpassed my expectations so i flew into la and um i remember I think I, I got like a cab or something, no Uber back in this day. And they take me to Laurel Canyon. And the first night, Kevin wasn't going to be available or something like that. So that was fine. But um, he drives me to Laurel Canyon and it's one of these streets. If you know anything about LA, it's like one of these streets that's off the main strip and it's really bougie. And, you know, we're like going up into the hills to get to this guy, Kevin Griffin's house. And I'm like, oh, this is really kind of cool. I come to find out that where I'm going isn't even Kevin's house. This is his, you know, this is his recording studio house. Right. And this is not going to make sense, but I'll explain a little bit. So the cab drops me off and it's this kind of little bungalow and I go in and, and yeah, and it's just like this house. It's like this 900 square foot, one floor house and there's a kitchen and there's a living room and there's a couple bedrooms. And so I, I make myself comfortable. And then there's like a carriage house in the back 
and like it has a sliding glass door and I go into it and this is awesome studio. It's not huge, but you know, like there's a cool rug on the floor. There's a huge console and a bunch of screens and you know, a whole bunch of guitars and pianos and basses and stuff. And so, you know, I go in there and noodle around a little bit. I think it's, wow, this is so awesome that I have these resources. I'm, I'm in LA right now and I'm in like this recording studio in the hills and I'm working with this guy who's, you know, has a platinum record and what I thought of myself. It, it's funny because I remember like Skyping my girlfriend at the time. I was like, check out this place. And I was running around with my laptop. I was like, look, here's one of the bedrooms and here's the kitchen and here's that. And I remember like I, uh, I ordered some food from Pink Dot and, you know, stocked the refrigerator because I was going to be there for a week. And again, I thought like I was living the dream. So I was super stoked about this. Again, surpassed all my expectations. I'm like, Lucas, you are a genius. But from there, it really only got better. So the atmosphere was obviously awesome. But then Kevin comes in and he's this awesome guy. He's from Louisiana. He's huge. He's like six foot something. And, you know, we started in the morning. We have some coffee and I play him some of the songs that I came in with, you know, my Bruce Springsteen Born to Run album, uh, version 2.0. And he's like, you know, th those aren't bad, but uh, he kind of steered me in another direction. And, you know, we worked on some of the old stuff and reworked it and we made a couple new songs. And I was like, wow, this is really great. Like his mentoring, even over a day, was really awesome. So we spent, you know, a day writing and then you know, maybe a couple days like that. And, and then on the third or fourth day of me being there, we actually started to lay down some tracks and, you know, it, it, it just baffled me like what we can make. And, and I'm not sure, you know, whether it was, it was obviously Kevin and his influence that, that really made these songs what they were, but I was obviously a part of it too. It, it was definitely 50, 50. It's not like I sat there and he dictated to me what I was going to record and sing. It was a completely mutual and um, collaborative process. But what came out of it, I thought at the time, I was just like, wow, this song is a hit song. And we played it for Lucas and my manager at the time. And everyone was stoked about it. I mean, like Kevin like called up his wife and was like, hey, you got to come up here and listen to the song. And we were all going crazy over the song and how cool it was. And um, so, you know, I am convinced that this is the silver bullet. Like once Richard hears this song, there's no way that he's not going to buy into this, right? And so, uh, again, I'll let you listen for yourself, but this song is called Rules for Living. And uh, yeah, it was recorded with Kevin Griffin a million years ago, but the more that I listen to, the more I like it. So enjoy. You were born to a family whose fabric was torn from the moment you walked out to run from a life in the shadows when we were all we had. You grew up. When you turned 17, they split up Leaving town with the one thing you loved For a life in the shadows But we were all we had
so excited after we write this song we are talking about you know like what tv show this is going to be the theme song for you know where it's going to be played like what movie it's going to be placed in he starts to talk to me about you know hey man i'd love to cut drums for this whole record at the swing house where the fray just you know cut their record um you know and we're just talking about the future because we are convinced we have this song we're going to have Richard come down to the studio. He's going to hear this and he's just going to basically write us a blank check right there because this song is so awesome. And we go on to record a couple more. Uh, I'll, I'll play one more at the end of this episode. Um, but, you know, I, I you can assume that things don't turn out that way. Exactly. Uh, we have Richard come down to the studio and we're all hopped up and... We play a couple songs before Rules for Living, which, again, we believe is like, you know, it shows at least our potential and what Kevin and I can do together, not only writing, but recording, because we just cut that in, what, three or four days, uh, you know, alone in his makeshift studio in Laurel Canyon. But I remember Richard comes in, he sits on the couch, he listens to one song. Yeah, that's nice. You know, nothing really crazy. He listens to another song. He's like, uh, okay, cool. We're like, all right, well, we'll get him with this last one. We turn on Rules for Living, and, you know, we're rocking through it like a bunch of assholes. Me and Kevin are, like, rocking out, singing along, really selling it, but feeling it as well because, you know, I'm with this this guy who's written platinum records. Like, what does he need my shitty 
indie budget for. Again, I believe that he believed in me and that, you know, if we work together, we could get to another level. Um, and that like, he could kind of mentor me and, you know, make me into, or at least show me how he got to where he got to. Right. And, uh, same, same reaction. Well, that's, that's cool. You know, he, he went a little bit farther than that. Uh, I'm saying Richard, you know, he, he kind of explained that, you know, this sounds good, but I don't really understand how it fits with Dave's, you know, image and like, you know, what drive through records does. It sounds a little bit too mainstream. And I don't want to say that him and Kevin got in a fight, but you know, Kevin was kind of, and myself, we were kind of floored, right? We're, and I think he was a little bit offended because, you know, Kevin had done all this for free. He, he had written with other, I forgot exactly who like the, the cool guy that he wrote with at the time was, but it was someone really good. And, uh, you know, he kind of made himself available to us because Lucas had a connection, my manager. And because again, he kind of believed that if he did this on faith, that the results would allow us to work together and grow into something more. And then, you know, when Richard kind of stonewalled him, I think he started to realize exactly what was going on. And so, you know, we amicably, you know, Richard left amicably. Um, you know, the next day I left and went back to Florida and I've never spoken to Kevin after that. Uh, all I have to remember that experience by is that song and, and a couple more, um, so yeah, this is kind of the sad part of the story. And I don't think it gets much happier um, in this episode, at least. You know, I'm, uh, I'm in Florida. I'm, I have like 20 songs at this point, some that I've written on my own, some that I've written with, you know, grown-up songwriters and really, really great songwriters. Uh, and so I'm convinced that, you know, it's just a politics game at this point and that, you know, my vision is never going to get realized, um, you know, just because that's how the system works and how the machine is fed. And that was, again, like you can imagine, right? You guys have all had dreams and, and fluffy shit like that in your lives. And maybe everyone just needs them shot down. But when you get to basically play them out and, you know, it's just very frustrating to get that close and to be completely denied for reasons that are, that are beyond your control. Um, yeah. So, you know, and this is really kind of the end of me as a solo artist and not, not forever. I mean, I, I, to this day, I haven't really given up as a solo artist, but, um, at least for that first round, you know, um, from the momentum that I'd gained off my EP and getting signed as a, like a teenager, this was really, these last couple demos were, were it, um, you know, and I, I kind of lost, I kind of lost a lot of hope here. So again, I, I told you that this wasn't going to be a very happy story all the way through, but it is what it is. And, uh, I wanted to leave on this last song, uh, because, you know, we talked about this being, um, yeah, <laughs> talked about this being my Bruce Springsteen phase and this song that I'm going to play was another one that I recorded with Kevin. I came in with it, but Kevin kind of took it to the next level and we didn't do too much instrumentation around it. So, 
yeah, like to close out this chapter, I feel like it's really appropriate. It's it's not acoustic. It's just on the piano. It's it's I played all the piano and not really well. I'm not a piano player, but I kind of figured out enough to be able to play and sing at the same time. So it's almost like an acoustic song. Um, it has a lot of Springsteen layers in it, right, with the storytelling and stuff. And I think just I didn't know it at the time. But it was a perfect metaphor for kind of where I'd where I'd gotten to in my career and my life at that point. So, so yeah, last song, and uh, this episode is over. This is called Days Like These. She said I'm sweating outside, and it's the middle of December. It's been the same way here since I can remember. Now I'm 18. Still hanging around You know I thought by now I would have been Out of this town What do we do if we can never make it out? Sick of just sitting here and lying to myself And my friends Even though I don't have many left in this town I know it's days like these You feel like giving in I know it's days like these You feel like giving in It's raining outside And it's the middle of the evening Know the clouds around here Are so damn deceiving You would have thought by now They'd gone away But now they've been here so long Looks like they're here to stay We say What do we do if we can never make it out? I'm sick of just sitting here and lying to myself and my friends Even though I don't have many left in this town I know it's days like these you feel like giving in I know it's days like these you feel like giving in I'm taking my time but I'm falling behind I'm willing to walk the thinnest line So tell me if you want to go I know it's days like these you feel like giving in I know it's days like these you feel like giving in I know it's days like these you feel like giving in I know it's days like these you feel like giving in It's the middle of December It's been the same way here Since I can remember
and that's a wrap episode number what five four three what is it episode it was justin it was bill it was kyle it's number so episode number five of 52 that we got going on i really appreciate you guys listening i hope that you like how the story is progressing there's a lot more to come next week or whenever we get back to the too young to fail series i promise that there is like uh there's kind of an upward lift coming uh this was a little bit depressing after i listened back but it, it at least you can appreciate that it's real uh so yeah you can get this uh this podcast on soundcloud.com slash conversation underscore peace you can find us on the apple app for podcasts as well if you do find us on there give us five stars say nice things about us tell all your friends and uh until next time see ya